0: Places now, isn't it? And it's for either. Case of my life.
1: We are back, and we are Lost Futures, a Mark Fisher podcast, and I'm Stephen Klett, and this is...
0: Marlowe.
1: And we're here with... The Joy Division chapter. The Joy Division chapter, or the first section of the second chapter.
0: Chapter one, the second chapter.
1: The return of the 70s. The
0: first chapter of the 20th century's 1970s.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah... Let's start with this chapter name, The Return of the Seventies, before we get into the episode. Yeah, so this is Joy Division, but Joy Division works in this chapter as one of many different aspects of the 70s British culture that Mark Fisher wants to look at. Think of
0: Joy Division as a part of the 80s.
1: (laughs) Not Mark Fisher. Yeah. It's at a special part of between 1979
0: and 1980. Yes. So yeah, I mean, I guess he starts out with this to because he sees Joy Division as especially transitional.
1: Right. Each section of this will have a different thing that he looks at. Uh, this is Joy Division. The next will so. be. For those of
0: you incapable of feeling joy, rejoice, we're talking joy division.
1: Yeah, so let's just jump into it. The first thing is, what's it called? No longer the pleasures, joy division.
0: I mean, I I guess the first paragraph, really, he uh, tries to ground this in what I would view as the running thesis of the work of ontology. And this transitional space in which could produce the band of Joy Division that no longer exists. I mean, he more or less says as much.
1: Yeah, I think we can can even read it. If Joy Division matter now more than ever, it's because they capture the depressed spirit of our times. Listen to Joy Division now, and you have the inescapable impression that the group was catatonically channeling our present their future.
0: Just to get to the last sentence. (laughs) Yes. The conditions that allowed a group like Joy Division to exist have evaporated. Hey, that's what I said. But so has a certain gray grim texture of everyday life in Britain, a country that seemed to have given up rationing only reluctantly. So a lot of this, yeah, really gets into the kind of duality of the 1970s as being both a time of creativity and expression but also doweringly depressing and just on the cusp of the introduction of neoliberalism. Right
1: and I think he said it here or somewhere but he says that the 70s are kind, kind of also racist. Yes.
0: He, he mentions that
1: too. It, 70s occupy a unique place because it's between the utopian 60s and the austerity of the 80s. I don't know if he said that or if it if i just thought that up myself but i think yeah, he does say to go back to what we said last time forms of social security then taken for granted have long since been destroyed but vicious prejudices that were then freely aired have become unacceptable so
0: i mean i think that's vaguely part one of this section and part two he basically compares some documentaries
1: yeah okay so why is he talking about it now the other running theme about this is that he's writing this in the 2000s and 2010s and he sees that there are a lot of references in culture to the 1970s and
0: metacriticism uh with his talk of ontology as being this disjointed time where time isn't clear this essay is adapted from 2005 but regularly makes references to the 2010s. Yes, he does.
1: Or in this he talks about 07 right. uh, Control. He references 24 Hour Party People, which is like a movie that features Joy Division in it. Control is more of a documentary about the band.
0: So He really has this contrast between two documentaries, uh, Control and Joy Division, both came out in 2007. I mean, Control is basically a a rock doc, a, a, a concert documentary. I mean, it's basically fucking Scorsese and the fucking band. Yeah, um,
1: it's you can look it up. It just basically has some of their concerts right. um, um, strung together with some explanation. Yeah, yeah. And so Control is trying
0: to essentially bring back, and I guess this is where he gets into the difference between mourning and... Melancholy. Melancholy. Where um, Control, I guess, would be the melancholy... Yeah, the melancholic. Where it's still... You know, essentially giving its libido you know, to the Joy Division. It's not letting go. It's trying to bring them back. Whereas he says that uh, Joy Division documentary kind of observes the absence. Mourns.
1: Yes. Yes, um. it's more of the mourning. Which goes back to what we said with Tricky. And in the last, mm-hmm. about the mourning, melancholy, the last couple episodes, he's made that distinction before. Right. So that's the second paragraph, and yeah, he he ends this section with a kind of haunting thing where someone in in Joy Division, the documentary, goes, how old are you? And then the answer is from Ian Curtis, the singer of Joy Division, who says 28, which is chilling. We all know that uh, he died at the age of 23. Yep. So that's how he introduces the article, and then coming up we'll get to the next section. Talk
0: a lot more about fucking joy.
1: We are gonna get into necromance. That was Atrocity Exhibition, which has the title of the next section, which is
0: Asylums with Doors Open Wide. That's real clever when you're Analyzing a band.
1: (laughs) Use that as your titles. But anyway. What would you say this section is
0: about? You see, that's uh, my problem with this section, and we kind of uh, touched on this, is I feel like it's about two different things and I don't see how they relate to each other. All right, Um, let's talk about it then. The first part is about New Order, and the second part is sort of about feminism ish. We can start with New Order. Well,
1: who is New Order?
0: New no orders of the Foo Fighters... Wait, no. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the Foo Fighters to Joy Division's Nirvana.
1: That is a good way of putting it. It is the band that was formed after Ian Curtis died of suicide. Right. And uh, it was basically just Joy Division without Ian Curtis. Yeah. But but before they get into it, they talk about Mark Fisher's first introduction to the band. He says it in 1982... He first heard them at age 14, and it was like an epiphany moment for him.
0: Yeah, um, it was incredibly meaningful.
1: Because he he mentions Ballard, he mentions Burroughs, Dub, Disco, Gothic, antidepressants, psych wards, asylums with doors wide open, uh, overdoses, and slashed wrists. All it the was fun a things. band
0: for sad fucking weirdos, and Mark Fisher was one of those people.
1: Well, it was tough in 1982 in England. Yeah, it's in an incredibly
0: depressing place. It's really gray, um.
1: <laughs> and and yeah, then they go into the New Order and how they were kind of the pop or the pop well, extension of well, Joy I mean, Divisions. he kind of
0: says, "Well, New Order now." Being New Order after the 90s, when New Order came out with this incredibly stupid uh, soccer related song. Yeah. Um, Which is great.
1: It's yeah, great.
0: It kind of reminds me of all the NFL teams' like rap songs they did about themselves. Yeah, it's back incredibly in the 80s. corny. But anyway, yeah, he kind of starts out with New Order now, and he doesn't just say they, like, sold out or something. He's a little more nuanced, where he talks about this kind of effort to escape, which, I mean, you know, escape, I guess, Ian Curtis, escape, you know, the background of what they are, New Order, we know them because they're Joy Division.
1: Yeah, and it kind of links into the dramatic element. Continuing on in in new order.
0: Right. At the same time, they continually channel Ian Curtis. I think he uses the term channeling. Well, I mean, he has this, like, a side about this interview they did uh, where he kind of calls them simpletons who (laughs) um, happen to just be geniuses because of what they are and who they are and where they are like kind of is almost like how i feel like mark fisher feels about new order they are forever going to carry this ian curtis and they will forever have him through them and through their music even when their music's kind of stupid and they also don't know why or what they're doing or how they're doing it. I don't know. Do you have thoughts, conclusions,
1: well about what he repeatedly says that they're they're necromancers and sorcerers, right? Which and that,
0: gets into the specters of Marx exorcisms, etc. Yeah,
1: like they have no idea what they're doing and they have no desire to learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, no, I mean I wasn't
0: just. Josh, the image I have is, like, the village idiot who, like, gets possessed by it to be God's prophet, and, like, has God s- speaking through them
1: specifically. But this gets into a tension that continues throughout this, where he links Joy Division to dumb bro culture.
0: Right. Well, you know, so he links Joy Division to destructive self-harm, and he links Joy Division yeah his overall and i mean i think this is sort of one of the threads throughout all of these sections is what does mark fisher think of joy division
1: well he loves the music
0: yeah he loves the music but like there's seemingly this kind of is it okay to love the musicness to this essay but that's not it, i mean not even that like i don't want to I mean, that actually does sound kind of vampire ghastly. But, like, who are these guys, really? What are they? Were they good? Were they bad? Did they make the world a better place, a worse place? Like, kind of these, like, on a smaller scale, these sorts of questions, I feel like is a thread that runs through this.
1: One other thing to add to that is, thus, when he died, they said they felt like they had lost their eyes. I think that's a lyric. But I link it back to the tricky Blade Runner connection, the eyes. It seems mm-hmm. like Mark Fisher links this, you know, when people talk about eyes, you know, You kind sound
0: like my 11th grade English teacher talking about The Great Gatsby. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is very uh, literary criticism, but he does the hauntingness of continuing is traced through the eyes and he mm-hmm. said that in the, the Blade Runner and he and, and Tricky referenced it in the last episode uh, and here he has it again you know they felt like they had lost their eyes Ian Curtis was their eyes and so now what's left after the eyes are gone is the dumb body
0: but again I don't know that that's his conclusion with New Order I, I feel like there's something to be said that it's this dumb body that still channels the ghost. Like, like I said like the village idiot that God just chose to speak through because God can do that. And again I mean Ian Curtis as we will get into is not God to
1: Mark Fisher.
0: But like that sort He's of
1: all too human.
0: Right. But that sort of I don't know. I don't want to just read it as, like, well, early New Order was good, and later New Order was, like, kind of poppy and whatever. Which, you know, I'm sure that's sort of how he feels, but I, I think he's trying to say more.
1: Well, then he gets into the other aspect, that the the aspect of this that you mentioned the second part. Right, the- which is...
0: It kind of feels like I'm at a fucking fish show, where, like, the last couple of notes, and then all of a sudden something else, and I'm like, oh, we're playing this song now. Um, Like, he kind of trails off on... uh,
1: Provided you were male, of course. Right.
0: There was an odd... This is perfect, because this is the paragraph that both transitions into the next section and kind of does conclude what I feel like is sort of its own thing. Above all, and even if only because of audience reception, they were more than a pop group, more than entertainment, that much is obvious. We know all the words as if we wrote them ourselves. We followed stray hints in the lyrics out to all sorts of darker chambers, and listening to the albums now is like putting on comfortable and familiar sets of clothes. But who is this we? Well, it might have been the last we that a whole generation of not-quite-men could feel a part of. There was an odd universality available in Joy Division's devotees, provided you were male, of course. And then the next paragraph repeats that line, and then starts off on this thing. Yeah,
1: and so that's when he gets into discussing Deborah Curtis, Ian Curtis's widow who was there, they were going through, like, a tough time in their, their marriage, and she found him dead.
0: Right, and, like, the tough time they were going through, and I mean, I feel like I can sort of tangentially <laughs> relate to this, was uh, living with a somewhat self-absorbed Suicidal, constantly making himself the center of everything, kind of person. Well, he
1: was having an affair.
0: Oh well, also that. I Uh, mean, I was just going off of. I didn't know that. Also, he literally was also having a. Yeah, sure.
1: He was having a pretty public affair (laughs) with a model. I think it wasn't a model. It was uh, Anne Connery, which is which was a Belgian journalist and music promoter. Okay. And they had a kid together. Um,
0: I I was just thinking about the section where he gets into, like, her basically coming to him, like, about, like, his lyrics and his writing and, like, just constantly talking about, like, wanting to fucking kill himself and just being like, yeah, like, could you tell me if you really do want to do that? Because, you know, I sort of, like, have a life that... Assumes you're not going to kill yourself. Um, And, like, he got, like, pissed off at her and, like...
1: Yeah, one of the things that led to his demise was feeling guilty over this and abandoning his child and stuff. Stuff that...
0: Yeah, I mean, sure. Yeah, I mean, you know... You did did the thing that... Eh, whatever.
1: All right, so, yeah, so... Touching from a distance is Deborah Curtis's long biography, autobiography, about Mm -hmm. her experience married to Ian Curtis. And what this gets into is the extreme maleness of Joy Division, which you were touching upon, about... How it's self-consciously a boy's thing. The boys seem to derive their fun from each other, according to Deborah Curtis. What fun? <laughs> <laughs> they seem fucking miserable, I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> but it, like, this is the like weird thing about, and this is also very much my background as never listening to Joy Division and not being from England, and Mark Fisher's background of being from England and listening to, some might say, an extremely large amount of Joy Division, there exists for me this, like, duality of, yeah, like, okay, there's this... I guess it's like a David Foster Wallace sort of maleness of, like, you know, this is my, like, thousand-page tome that's the most important work of literature and all of time that you need to read to be smart and also I'm gonna kill myself sort of self-indulgence or self-importance but like I mean yeah you have the soccer song from the order and then you just have the rest of it as being I don't know extremely emotional arguably feminine characteristics like by some standards of I don't know, talking about how fucking sad you are all the time. Like, I, like what, what is this, like, fun lad culture of, like, hanging out and being depressed together? <laughs> just, is, like, kind of my... This isn't really Mark Fisher, and sorry for going on the aside, but, like, this is, like, sort of my own, like, trying to work through this is... It's interesting to me.
1: Yeah, and he specifically talks about the... Because he
0: gets into the Depression of it much more and that I
1: yeah well in this section he gets into the epilepsy because he has epilepsy and that's another thing that really along with the affair weighing on him the limitations that the epilepsy he would have epileptic fits on stage and not be able to finish shows Mm -hmm. and like he had a crippling fear of going to America for their first big you know tour and that was a huge pressing thing. Am I going to have an epileptic seizure on stage? Will America understand in this first time that we're bringing Joy Division to a world stage, et cetera, et cetera. And here he he, he links, like, She Lost Control, which is a song. Right,
0: that, so this is, yeah, I, I kind of like this section, uh, well, this little paragraph, I guess, uh, at this point, where he kind of, in talking about this, maleness of joy division i think really it's not even so much like bro culture or lag culture as a progressive othering of the feminine as like even a thing Mm -hmm. and i think this is like sort of drives that um where he, he talks about this song she lost control and you linked it to tricky and i think that's an interesting contrast because essentially in she lost control Ian Curtis is talking about himself and his own fears, but he's assigning it to this unnamed woman in his song. Whereas with Tricky and his playing with gender that Mark Fisher gets into, you have this sort of, you know, I don't want to just contrast it as like female empowerment versus not, but like this idea Where he made the masculine feminine and the feminine masculine as this sort of way of playing on his life experiences where, on the one hand, he grew up in the ghetto. He grew up in a place where machismo and male toughness was valued. But at the same time, the toughest people he knew was his aunts, his grandmother... He didn't know his mother. Um, but like the women in his life were the ones who had to put in the fucking work. And that's what he was kind of trying to do with his music, whereas this is very much an othering and just a... Well, to help me work through my problems, imagine if it happened in this broad that I don't know.
1: <laughs> um. Well, yeah, and another thing that links the tricky piece to this is that Mark Fisher... Kind of interestingly, you know, he talks about the vocals in a similar way, or like a contrasted way, whereas, like, feminine voice is projecting, like, uh, written by Tricky and projected onto, but here it's Curtis's soporical, anhedonic vocals sent back to him, as if they were the voice of an other, or other, others in long, leering, expressionistic, Echoes that linger like acrid acid fog. Which,
0: also, I'll just say, I think my little rant uh, is a little apropos. Because, like, I think there is sort of this tension between, I guess, the ladness they want to... I swear to God I'm never going to use that fucking word again. (laughs) Um, The ladness they want to project versus, you know, this discussion of emotions and depression that they want to talk about but like they need to pin it to some hysteric bra.
1: Well, and the other thing they pin it to is is death. And in, in here in the end he says the seizures little deaths, petite morts which offer terrifying but exhilarating releases from identity more powerful than any orgasm. So like if you've been around rock long enough, you know that there are two things people mostly write about in rock and it's women and death (laughs) at least men oh and drugs and drugs yeah yeah anyway
0: all the music i listen to is unproblematic as fuck (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but yeah anyway let's listen to this song about some crazy chick
1: yeah yeah this is she's lost control In the next section in this colony.
0: So he starts out by saying Joy Division made being sad into a uh, whole identity and way of being, which was extremely popular in the late 70s
1: in England. It yeah. Caught on
0: very well amongst the youth of he, this era of England.
1: Yeah, he says, try to imagine England in 1979 now. It is very sad. Yes. We didn't have
0: VCRs, which is not strictly speaking true. I don't know when VCRs came to England, but they started... Yeah, like,
1: technology was not anywhere what we have in the 2000s, 2010s, and... Well,
0: okay, I mean, you know, he gets into, you know, you have this, like, post-punk, anti-glamour...
1: He calls it Eastern Bloc.
0: Right. Which, again,
1: he brought up in the last... Essay. You know,
0: one thing we didn't mention about Joy Division, which I don't know exactly where he talks about it, but you know, how they all like wear these suits on stage or just dress shirts and ties Mm -hmm. or like there's this functional formality, I guess, that I think here he kind of, if my memory serves correct, like he kind of identifies with this.
1: Yeah, he says deliberately functional formality of their clothes. Right.
0: Yeah, okay. Fuck. I did get that from him. <laughs> okay, cool. I'm glad that I I picked that up. Up and up. like yeah, it's like you're not dressed for a black tie, but you're not wearing jeans and a t-shirt.
1: Yeah, I think you linked it to like the mods, you know. Well, yeah, the British like, kind that of was
0: very much a there there was this whole subculture of like actually making your own clothes and shit well
1: this this i think goes back to japan what we were talking about with japan right where there's like an english gentleman kind of thing but right but with this it's more like we're not that japan wasn't depressed but well, yeah
0: the fact of the matter is this is a book about music i like by a guy who likes a certain kind of music yeah. And, um, I mean, we can get into, you know, all day and night about, like, how fucking Jefferson Airplane happened to dress similar to the guys in The Grateful Dead in the 60s. What about that? Like, yeah, it was a scene they were in, and...
1: Yeah, he names off a bunch of different references that he kind of said before: Dostoevsky, Conrad, Kafka, Burroughs, Ballard—all of the things that I relate to as a, as a fourteen-year-old. Right,
0: like, and he was very much like coming at this from a uh, yeah, and this is like again where I like kind of question the lad culturedness of this, where it's like. You're just describing a nerd. Like, I mean, I know exactly what kind of 14-year-old's into this shit. Like, yeah, it's you when yeah. you were 14.
1: I was um, I was into Dostoevsky, into yeah. Kafka, and into listen Burroughs. And you weren't to fucking
0: Sum 41 then, so what's that say about that? Okay. But um, he's describing a type of person who's into a bunch of stuff and he feels alone about all this and all of a sudden... This band comes along and, who oh boy, that's great. And what does this band say about the world and how I should feel about it? Let's get into that.
1: He also puts import onto their name before Joy Division, which was...
0: Warsaw, which gets into the Eastern Bloc element. And again, I mean, that he does relate the clothing to that. He does relate, like, this functional formality, this... We have respectability, we will project respectability, but we're also not gonna buy, like, a black tie tuxedo kind of thing. Yeah,
1: and, or those big 80s things with, uh, like, David Byrne. Yeah, anyway. Well, the other thing that he says that I, I, I underlined here was rigorous modernists. And I thought that was an interesting descriptor for this.
0: Well, this is where he gets into the, I guess, epistemology of depression. Mm -hmm. Um, This idea that there is something very compelling and very logically defensible about the notion that the world is abjectly terrible... And exiting the world is the only solution. (laughs) And and this he kind of identifies as this philosophical, ideological... I, I think this is actually interesting even to contrast with capitalist realism and the talk about, like, social depression and the social aspects of mental illness, which... Capitalist realism is famous for that, albeit, like, paragraph and a half-ish. Next season,
1: everybody teaser. Yeah, teaser.
0: Whereas this, he really talks about depression as ideology.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, he says it later in a later section, which we're going to get to. Right. Depression But this is
0: is where he introduces these ideas, that he identifies depression as being an argument about the state of the world. Yeah. uh And... Joy Division, he identifies as making that argument, and he identifies that argument as... I feel like he sort of universalizes how compelling this argument is, but at least to him, he seems to think it's a compelling
1: argument. Yeah, and that moves on to the next section where he links it with black culture, black music and black American culture, which again seems like disjointed but connected in a way. He says that there was a sonic experimentation of the Black Atlantic and I think he gets this from a theorist you know, the Black Atlantic Thus denotes a specifically modern cultural political formation that was induced by the and inheritance of the African slave trade in the plantation system in the Americas and which transcends both the nation state and ethnicity. Which is a reference to Paul Gilroy's Black Atlantic, which he referenced in an early essay. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's important to understand where he's coming from with this, that there is a connection between post-punk and rap that he also points out in Tricky. Yeah. Um, And he, he, he says, you know, Grace Jones covers She Lost Control... Sleazy D has I've Lost Control. And then he goes into Kanye West referencing uh, Blue Monday, uh, Joy Division cover. Um, Well, I mean,
0: there's certainly, like, an obvious connection between hip-hop and uh, not necessarily Joy Division specifically, but this era of British music and American music where... Early hip hop sampled these beats and used them and used also the same electronic equipment that they used to make music to make their own music. Like, there is a very much, I mean, hip hop as late 70s, early 80s electronic music
1: and the Um, the interesting thing i think he's making here is that it's also in reverse right black music also inspired the post-punk
0: they were both using 808 drum machines i mean like i mean the reason that kanye west's album 808s and heartbreaks is an album that among other things does call up the early 80s is because the 808 drum machine is a fucking piece of electronic equipment that was used to make Both early hip-hop music and early new wave, early electronic and all that
1: shit. Yeah, and he says that here, both Joy Division and The Fall were black in the priorities and economics of their sound. And he says black, in, in quotations, bass-heavy and rhythm-driven. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah,
0: he, and yeah, they both use rhythm. Fine, Mark.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and he also links it to disco, which he...
0: Yeah, no, okay, so I will um, actually push back on the idea that the disco is somehow artificially black, because, um, no, black people invented disco. <laughs> sorry i understand that like you think the italians did or whatever i don't know how that works but i don't know black people or disco that was black music it always was white people just did it i'm just gonna say <laughs> and it was hatred of blacks and gays that led to the death of disco and the 90s reaction to it
1: that pretty much summarizes the right that's the end of the section yeah
0: no it's a short section
1: yeah, he says then that this kind of transforms into a... Uh, from Warsaw, they turn into cyberpunks, is his last words. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he, they go from, you know, this Eastern Bloc kind of music to futuristic music. <clears throat> anyway, we'll be back. ¶¶ Yeah, that song always reminds me of uh, Violent Femmes. Dun, 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 yeah, dun, I mean, it, dun, dun, like, it all
0: has this kind of, you know, again, outsider to this music looking and limited familiarity. But it has this, like, sort of surf-rocky-punky, like... I've compared it to the Pixies when you were showing me them initially, um and yeah, I mean, it all, and violent pens as well, like that yeah, um yeah
1: and and in this section, he specifically gets into the more structural elements of yeah,
0: this is the lost futures section. this is the like the day the modernism died, the day the dream capitalist died.
1: realism came about, well,
0: not the day capitalist realism was like. You needed the Soviet Union to fall for that, but this
1: is post-Fordism. Famously he said, "1979 is when,
0: when neoliberalism took over and the welfare state fell, and Fordism died for post-Fordism." Well, A that's fabulous, that's real-
1: what he's talking about here. Yes, yes. And Mrs. Thatcher and the Cold right, War. Right,
0: Thatcher, Cold War, and um, he links- we didn't start the fire, you know. <laughs>
1: He he links it specifically to speed come down.
0: Right, yes. Yeah, so this is the he he compares the era that brought us Joy Division as a national amphetamine crash.
1: Yeah. Pretty much. Which reminds me of the movie Blow. You ever see that movie?
0: Like once.
1: It's with Johnny Depp. Yeah, I know it's doing with Johnny co- Depp. It,
0: he's the cocaine guy. But it's a
1: very 70s simulacrum. Like, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's very much the in the same mold as like uh, Las Vegas.
0: Well, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a different kind of story than Fear and Loathing. Fear
1: and Loathing in Las Vegas. Unless
0: you mean leaving Las Vegas, in which case we're talking about a different movie entirely.
1: (laughs) But but all three movies have this come down.
0: Yeah, I guess all three. Well, you know,
1: arguably leaving Las Vegas is about an
0: infinite come up. Um, (laughs) But yeah, yeah, I mean, all three movies, I guess, deal with doing a. Some might argue too many drugs.
1: And this specifically is talking about doing too many drugs and then coming down from it. And yeah,
0: in this case, too many drugs is the welfare state, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah. it's
1: the production. It's the capitalist production. Right, yeah, yeah.
0: It's, uh, it's Capital thought it had this fucking winning formula since the end of World War Two that never needed to be fucked with, and then suddenly they fucked with it, and a lot of people got rich, and everyone else uh, invented Joy Division and started listening to Joy Division.
1: This then gets to what you were talking about, the two meanings of depression. I think you had some notes on this. The two meanings of breakdown, the two meanings of depression. Which I think he's referencing more like...
0: Oh, I didn't have a thing on this, but this is good. Yeah. I'm glad you attributed it to me thinking about it. Um, well,
1: it gets to the kind of the delusional schizophrenia as culture, Well, I mean, we're, we're literally
0: talking about depression. I mean, let's just say the two meanings of depression in this case are quite not philosophical. It's... An economic depression, or you're depressed. I mean, like, that's what we're saying.
1: Which um, is what he says in Capitalist Realism, and like that. Mm-hmm. The fact is. Yeah, when I mean,
0: that dude is. He is super goddamn uh, Derrida with those uh, signs and signifiers about depression. Yeah, <laughs> de-
1: deconstructive about <laughs> the way in which society having an economic depression leads to more people being depressed. Yeah. I think that's. Yeah. A fair thing to say. Mm-hmm. And the thing about capitalism is it always takes the two and separates them. Right. And here, you know, he's the first person for me that links the two. I'm sure it's been linked to yeah, elsewhere. Yeah, sure, um, but... and then he talks about interviews with I think the guitarist Sumner. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Throughout all of this, he is linking to quotes and interviews with members of the band. And these members of the band are essentially, for lack of anything better, they were talking about an idyllic time of growing up in the 60s in a working class family that had a home in an okay area where kids played outside together and all of a sudden you had to move and they ended up in these tower apartments or whatever the fuck and they didn't realize at the time that those moments they had were a thing that they were going to lose forever, and it took them a while to even realize that this emptiness they felt was for this thing they didn't even understand was good until well after they lost it, which he generally links to, you know, the music of Joy Division and all that.
1: I think it's broader, the lost futures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah, no, I mean, he's very much tying all this together and i mean if we want to get back to earlier talking about ghosts i mean this time's a ghost yeah and we are melancholic about the ghost
1: yeah he says it here and i really like this quote a requiem for doomed youth culture here are the young men the weight on their shoulders went from the famous lines of decades On the album Closer, second album by them. The title New Dawn Fades and Unknown Pleasures could themselves be referred to the betrayed promises of youth culture. Yet, what is remarkable about Joy Division is their total acquiescence in this failure, the way in which, from the start, they set up an Antarctic camp beyond the pleasure principle. And that'll fade out the next section until we get to set the controls for the heart of the black sun. Yeah, set the controls for the heart of the black sun. Yeah. Okay. So this
0: is depression as ideology.
1: Yeah, it's really an amazing section. Yeah, this
0: I feel like is like kind of the.
1: He starts out with naming uh, Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, uh, well, Jim Morrison. Uh,
0: okay. So I mean, I'll just we. I, I've been referring to this as sad people. Uh, or sad music, or whatever, whatever in my end, like, douchey little way. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's not sad music. All, all the, Fucking all music, There, there's sad music in all kinds of music. Like, being sad is where the, the fucking phrase, the blues, got its name. Like, it's an entire genre, and uh, chord structure has been named after being sad. So there's nothing innovative about joy division being sad and he compares it yeah the lou reed being sad about women or heroin not either having too much or not enough yeah he compares it to all these other bands including mick jagger you know who have all had sad songs who have all had music as being sad but the thing is all of those songs had an object that they were sad about they Are singing about a woman who left them or who died, or they're singing about addiction, or they're singing about uh, not having enough money is something. Whereas Joy Division, for them, just being sad was in and of itself the conclusion, the cause, and.
1: The ideology. The ideology,
0: the purest ideology.
1: Yeah, and. It's really interesting how he brings it all together. The quote that you always talk about is the lack of any apparent object cause for their melancholia. And that to me is the real quote that you're describing here. Like, all those bands had things that they were sad about, but man, at the end of the day... A blues,
0: you, you know, whole genre It wasn't named after being sad, though. It was named after a woman who done you wrong.
1: Yeah. This is sad for being sad's sake. Right.
0: It's being sad because you know the truth, which is you should be sad.
1: That the world is sad. Yes. And he, he then links it here. Depression is, after all and above all, a theory about the world, about life. And that that yes. to me is the real diamond in this is depression. You're making an argument as you said for the world is not good. It is a sad and stupid place. Politicians are bad, war is cruel. There's all these things that overwhelms you. And I mean this is, you know, this is almost passé at this point to say because we just kind of accept this as a, a thing today, here in 2022.
0: That Well, I mean, it, it, it's always been accepted. I mean, there's the middle. You can have writing from the Middle Ages about, like, the priests are lying to you and the king's stupid. Like,. You, you you always have that, but there's a certain, I mean, I don't even want to just simplify it to fatalism or defeatism. I, I would argue that it ultimately comes to that, but there's a certain idea in it that it's like not fixable and even to really want to fix it is sort of missing the point.
1: And he... Linking to the last section, uh, the feminist section in in this, where he says, This is why joy division can be such a dangerous drug for young men. Mm -hmm. And here he says they are presented... Whose names
0: are Mark Fisher.
1: (laughs) They are presented the truth. And that depression can be found in anywhere you look, basically. And that's the kind of ideology of depression. When you're sad, you look at a happy painting and you see sadness. When you, you listen to a song, you hear the sad parts of it and you cry about it. And here, it's like just, he, Joy Division is just quarantining off the sad parts and making that their identity. And I think that Mark Fisher identifying that because of who he is, you know, is really important to his argument. mm mm-hmm yeah and ends on something about mick jagger but i just
0: want to point out for the kids listening to this ruby tuesday not just the fun family steakhouse also a very sad song by the rolling stones <laughs> but it had an object of its sadness which was uh, ruby tuesday i guess i i don't know it was about not being able to go to a restaurant <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, he ends on Schopenhauer, which is yeah, which
0: is a teaser for later, but because he really does link this all to essentially a lay Schopenhauer ideology.
1: The pessimism. Uh, right.
0: I mean, he he essentially is arguing that without ever saying the name Schopenhauer or possibly reading a single thing by Schopenhauer, Joy Division tapped into a Schopenhauerian ideology.
1: Yeah. They embody the philosophy. They didn't necessarily re- read the philosophy. Right. And uh, that ends this section. Watching them pass like clouds in the sky Try to cry out in the heat of the moment Possessed by a fury that burns from inside Accept like a curse and unlock ease. Uh, yeah, that's uh the eternal Which uh, has the quote, except like a curse, an unlucky deal, which is the name of the next section. So,
0: yeah, I mean, this he kind of expands on what we've been talking about and what he talked about in the last section of this depressive theory, depression as a way of describing the truth.
1: Yeah, and he makes two references, the veil of Maya, curtain of maya or veil vale of maya which is uh, it explores the interpretive problems complexities and legacies of schopenhauer's encounter with ancient india which that is a mm-hmm. reference and then garden of delights which is a reference to burroughs the nova express which is uh the garden of earthly delights uh, or shorthand for the disease saturnalia of american affluence bunch of references right in the beginning if you're curious what he's discussing. But it all leads back to depression.
0: Hey, Steve, what's Poe's The Conqueror of Worm?
1: This is actually...
0: He also references this, and I'm quizzing Steve if he knows this. The,
1: the of Conqueror it. Worm is an Edgar Allan Poe story. And uh, then Ligoti... Uh, horror writer made the Last Feast of Harlequin as a reference to the Conqueror Worm, which he also has right there. Which, by the way, if you sign up for the Patreon, I'm working off of a large wiki for this, which you can access in our Patreon so that you can get all of the references for your wonderful read through. But yeah, that reference is like, I also looked up pre-mammalian, pre-multicellular, which is just primitive species. Is that Schopenhauer or... I mean, he's saying a wisdom that seems pre-mammalian.
0: Right, well, okay, so this is where he, uh, like, getting through the references, he's taking this notion he had before of uh, an epistemological, like, theory of how we know things, we know things because things are bad, and if they're bad, they're true and authentic, of depression to this idea, to, basically to Schopenhauer, to this idea, and I'll, I'll be straight up. my knowledge of Schopenhauer is absolutely tied to Jonas Cheka's YouTube channel. I don't know anything more about Schopenhauer than that. I'm not an expert on Schopenhauer, but he makes reference to the will, which is the Schopenhauerian concept that all of reality, all of being, all of ontology is tied up in this eternal, beyond even a conscious desire in the same way that an apple wills to fall from a tree to the ground, this eternal will. And this will constantly is seeking, and when it finds what it's seeking, it seeks more. And there's never any satiation to the will, and the solution is essentially to opt out of it and to end existence. And um, he kind of makes this his idea of like what Joy Division is kind of purporting to deliver whether they say it through their lyrics or their music or their interviews or whatever they're
1: the most schopenhauerian band is right and he's like how are they like schopenhauer and here he gives them a number of examples like being empty feeling cheated you lose your heart's desire i mean unknown pleasures or you know they're all like it's basically just the absence of feeling good, you know? And and Schopenhauer is kind of tapping into, okay, there's this will, what's, what's the opposite of that, you know? Right.
0: General emptiness. General, like, there's nothing at the end of the tunnel. There's...
1: Doomerism.
0: And literally this is ingrained into existence that Whatever you're seeking for fulfillment isn't really fulfillment, and you seeking it has no meaning.
1: And why, as he says, why carry on with the charade? Right. Yeah. And he also mentions another one of these autobiographical moments where a student wrote a paper on Schopenhauer on when their football team, which is soccer team for the Americans, you know, how you can, like, Link Schopenhauer to the feeling you get when your football team loses.
0: he basically, you know, it's the old adage of, like, there's no atheists in foxholes. Like, when your soccer team is losing, we're all Schopenhauerians. But, you know, Mark Fisher's point about Schopenhauer in that case and why it's different is if you desire your football team to win, you already are misreading Schopenhauer yeah you yeah, know there there is no point to your soccer team winning you know it's a kindergartners game really um, <laughs> but no i mean like yeah i mean even desiring that you'll inevitably they will win and you know uh, you'll still like die eventually so fuck it um
1: <laughs> yeah yeah Yeah, blackpilled, really. Right, yeah, I mean... It's what the kids are calling doomerism or blackpilled. The general... Yeah, I mean,
0: the kids who are, like, Nick Mullins' age. um, Yeah, the
1: kids that are over 30 years old.
0: (laughs) Right. I'm sure the Zoomers have much cooler words for being depressed. But anyway...
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's... Uh, I mean, we're getting sad. You know, you can only laugh at how sad this is because we're coming down to the end. We're coming down to the uh, the, the end of the fatalism, The wh- what this is all driving to. Although he does make a little bit of a pit stop at Spinoza, and I'm not... Maybe you can explain more of what... No,
0: he- I, I do... Okay, straight up, audience participation. If you know anything about Spinoza, <laughs> let us know. I... Don't know the reference he's making. It's because I didn't look it up, and I'm not going to purport to talk about it. Uh, what does he literally say? Depressive ontology is dangerously seductive because, as the zombie twin of a certain philosophical wisdom, it is half true. As the depressive withdraws from the vacant confections of life world, he unwittingly finds himself in concordance with the human conditions so
1: painstakingly diagrammed by a philosopher like Spinoza. He says. He sees himself as a serial consumer of empty simulations, a junkie hooked on every kind of deadening high, a meat puppet of the passions. The depressive cannot even lay claim to the comforts that a paranoia can enjoy, since he cannot believe that the strings are being pulled by anyone. No flow, no connectivity in the depressive's nervous system. Watch from the wings as the scene's we're replaying go the fatalistic lines in decades and curtis wrote with a depressive iron certainty about life as some pre-scripted film
0: i think there's you know probably an element of spinoza as like i don't know like a consumer a human as like a empty vessel always consuming and not being fulfilled or something i i don't know if you know about spinoza and want to tell us, you know, you could probably, if you're listening to this, you could probably reach us. <laughs> um, so yeah, anyone who knows about Spinoza knows what he's talking about, uh, all ears.
1: <laughs> yeah, and uh, I just had a thought that, you know, what the way he's talking about Joy Division throughout a lot of this is similar to the way that People talk about Mark Fisher when they talk about philosophy as the kind of... As the depressive... Yeah, there
0: there is always a general lumping in Mark Fisher as a tumor or whatever. Yeah. Which I I never personally felt. And, you know, I, I would never say that because he happened to succumb to suicide but yeah, I mean that—that's definitely a way people talk about him. Um, I, I don't agree with that, well, uh, personally. But
1: but it, it just—it just strikes me that yeah, the way no, he's, that,
0: that's interesting. Yeah, that it, the way
1: he's talking about Joy Division is the way some people talk about Mark Fisher, and that's interesting. That he's yeah. almost.
0: And I mean, I, this is we you know talked about it earlier. This space he's occupying where. He certainly likes Joy Division, but he uh, I would say there's a very critical bite to this writing, like about them right now. Um, you know, not like, oh, you're bad if you listen to them, or they're not good, or whatever, but there's a certain, you know, he, he is asking these questions.
1: Yeah, and that gets into the next session, which we're not really going to stop for. This is, in my opinion, the most black sabbath of the Joy Division songs. Tony I own
0: this shit. Yeah,
1: so this is, yeah, the show that's right? Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. We're at a loaded gun. won't set you free. So you say, uh, which you just heard from new Dawn fades, which is, as I said before, the, the most Tony Iommi black Sabbath riff. Oh, a little bluesy. Yeah. A little, little blues, a little, uh, Jim Morrison-y too, which we're going to get into at the end.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I will say, like, when you were showing them to me, y- you initially, like, mentioned The Doors, and that was, like, you know, with my music that I've listened to, I've listened to more than, like, classic rock bullshit, but I've listened to a lot of classic rock bullshit. And, yeah, you know, Jim Morrisony is a good anchor at least to kind of compare.
1: Yeah, the baritone like the deep yeah, yeah. the deep baritone voice that's uh like quivering and also Dionysian is the way that a lot of people call Jim Morrison, but more yeah. like that, that poetic kind of sense of self importance. Yeah. Which I kind of get from Ian Curtis a bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I speak about a band I barely listen to a lot of people like a lot. I have not listened to deeply enough of their lyrics to really get an opinion on that, I'll say.
1: Yeah, I'm not saying that he's... Well, Jim Morrison doesn't really have deep revelations oh, either. well, yeah, yeah. No, I, it I, is, I would not. But it's spoken with that kind of affect, or it's sung with that kind of affect.
0: I'm not necessarily comparing him to Jim Morrison as either praise or a diss, I'll
1: just say. <laughs> well, we're bringing up this song because his wife approached him about the lyrics here, and she's like, hey, Ian, why are you writing about setting yourself free with a gun? <laughs> that's that's a kind of weird thing for you to put yeah, in Yeah, you know, his
0: wife had, like, a kid. Yeah. It was also his kid. And, you know, she wanted to know if he, um, like, actually wanted to kill himself. And uh, he basically...
1: He avoided her, or avoid answering. Yeah,
0: him. he got angry and didn't answer.
1: Yeah, he, he stormed out.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is sort of the tone where Mark Fisher is ending this essay on... You know, he he throws in the bunch of other questions. Were they fascist? Were they this? Were they that?
1: He does an interesting thing about suicide where he says suicide was a guarantee of authenticity, the most convincing of signs that you were for real.
0: (laughs) Right, which I think also ties it into the general depressive
1: yeah it's real world
0: view the authenticity through depression and suicide is the confirmation of that and um yeah i mean that's sort of the tone this essay ends on and uh, this was one of mark Fisher's favorite bands. <laughs>
1: He then says it's the truth of Ladism, and that's sort of where, like right before he does the end, which is in this sense, also the song the end. Um, but he talks about this being the stripping away. The, the truth of joy division is that they were lads then Joy Division must also be the truth of Laddism. And then he says, you know, here, mental illness has increased 70% among adolescents. is a little PSA at the end here. And uh, suicide remains one of the most common sources of death for young males. And uh, then he ends the whole thing on an anecdote uh, about how his wife found the dead Ian. She woke up the day that she found him with the song The End playing when, he, when she turned on the radio or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, what more fitting way to end the podcast but on uh, The Doors, The End. And that is our Joy Division. Check us out. We are Lost Futures, a Mark Fisher podcast. This was a long one, folks. We hope you stay to the end. Enjoy the doors. Beautiful friend